0: Okay, welcome to the Wednesday Bible Study. Uh, It is uh, high noon is when we do this live. Now, a lot of you who are listening to it now are catching it at different times. We thank you for joining us wherever, and thank you guys for being here with us. We're going to go ahead and start um, a a new curriculum today. This will be a brand new uh, uh, study that we'll start today. We're going to be in Steve Farrar's book called Finishing Strong. Uh, Steve Farrar has actually spoke uh, to our men and one of our men's uh, man Church uh, a while back, and of course, he was. he's best known for uh, his first book, which was Point Man, which uh, every single young man should read, uh, and of course, this one is another one in uh, his long list now of great books that he's put out, and it's a topic that we want to apply to our lives today, and we're going to spend the next several weeks uh, on this topic. Uh, and If you want to get a copy of the book, that's fine. Uh, it's not required. Uh, remember, because uh, keep in mind, we've got... Uh, you know we're going to go through every chapter here, and, and you can take notes and pretty much get what the book is all about. But if you're somebody who likes to go ahead and read ahead or to read what we're doing as we go, uh, I know Amazon.com's got some back orders. I think some people had a hard time getting it; others didn't. Uh, I know we had somebody went out and found it at the bookstore. Russ, didn't you find it at a bookstore? Yeah. So whatever, grab it and uh, and get yourself a copy. And it's always one to keep uh, anyway. So let's uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for today. We are challenged by the term finishing strong, finishing well. And we're also challenged by the fact that, uh, Lord, in this side of heaven and in a fallen creation, uh, it doesn't happen to too many people very often. And, of course, the mistakes as we'll walk through are, have been around since the fall of mankind and help us, Lord, to maneuver through those, uh, keeping ourselves properly aligned under your authority. Uh, we pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, men of Shades that are here, Shades Mountain Baptist Church, or any of you guys who want to come uh, Sunday night, uh, Patrick Nix will be speaking to us. There's no ticket you need or anything like that. It starts at 6 o'clock. They'll be tailgating uh, probably starting about 5, 5.15 if you want to come cook out before we start. Uh, and it'll be there at the Conference Center five minutes from here at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. You're all welcome to join us. Okay, so Chapter 1 of Finishing Strong with Steve Ferrar, And we're going to continue this. So those of you that are coming to Man Church, when I get up there and they, they let people get around me, we'll... You know, just come up there. But you know, we've already started. We will have to tell the new people. But let's be honest. If we look at our uh, at our history, the new people don't last very long anyway. Uh, so, so we don't. That's why I don't start catering to them very much. So, raise your hand if, if this is like you've been here less than a year. You just start. Okay. So some of you guys. So we got some new guys that made it. Okay. Good. You're still here. Uh, so we'll, we'll 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 try to because well, it doesn't really. You know, I tell some of the guys that are not really good ambassadors to this class, and it's not really true. You know, how we love to exaggerate. And I had one of the members of the class one time tell me, they said, well, I had a guy from work I was trying to get to come. And, and he, he and I are in just go together over the church, and, I, and he's not going to come. And I said, well, what did you tell him? He said, well, I tell him that Rick has a Bible study every Wednesday over at the studio, and we go in there, we sit down. He kicks us in the groin for an hour, then we leave. <laughs> and, um, and I said, well, no wonder he won't come. We can sell it better than that. And that's not accurate. But anyway, uh, but the conviction is yeah, the word of God is, is always a, a conviction. So in chapter one, Steve Ferrar talks about uh, that the, he, this number one out of 10, uh, it, it comes into play. And uh, he starts off the chapter with a and, and of course, uh, with a Jewish proverb that says, "Truth is heavy, so few men carry it. It's so heavy that so few men, Ever carry it. And you could probably think in your own mind, I don't know that we need Steve or studies to tell us, sadly, uh, that there's not a lot of men that, that finish strong uh, in the Bible, uh, outside of the Bible, and, and there's some that may surprise us a little bit as we go through. So he, he brings up the example of the 1994 NBA draft that had Grant Hill and Jason Kidd and Glenn Robinson. And he said, of course, Kidd and Grant, first time ever, we had co rookies of the year. And Robinson uh, was a close second, and all three of them uh, impacted their team. All three of them did. And then he says so there was also something that happened very similar uh, inside of ministry in 1945. And he said this was, this was remarkable, too. And, you know, in 1945, uh, he said it was an unbel- unbelievable year for rookie evangelists. And that year, 27 year old Billy Graham uh, came storming out of seemingly nowhere. Uh, He also uh, was speaking to as many as 30,000 people a night. Uh, And uh, he also was hired as a full-time evangelist for Youth for Christ. Do you know that's where he started? And his reputation as a uniquely gifted preacher roared across the country. And uh, the rest, of course, as we know, is is history. Uh, So we've all heard of Billy Graham, right? We all heard of Billy Graham? Uh, We all heard of Billy Graham. Uh, But also, have you ever heard of Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford? No, I had never heard of them. Uh, until I started reading this. Uh, reading this, um, Templeton and Graham were friends. They both ministered for Youth for Christ. Both were extraordinary preachers, and I thought this was interesting. It said that in, in those early years, most observers would have probably put their money on Templeton becoming what Billy Graham become, not, became, not Billy Graham. And, and why? As a matter of fact, it says in 1946 the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on men who were best used of God in, in that organization's five-year existence. The article highlighted the ministry of Chuck Templeton. Billy Graham was never mentioned. but So they thought that Templeton would be the next Babe Ruth of evangelism. Now, Bron Clifford was another gifted 25-year-old fireball in 45. Many believe that Clifford may have been the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. In that same year, Clifford preached to an auditorium of thousands in Miami, Florida. People lined up 10 to 12 deep outside the auditorium trying to get in. Later that same year, when Clifford was preaching, in a chapel at Baylor University, the president ordered class bells turned off so that the young man could minister without interruption to the student body for two hours and 15 minutes. He kept the students on the edge of their seats as he preached on the subject, Christ and the Philosopher's Stone. So at this time, all three look fantastic. And as a matter of fact, Billy Graham of the three, you probably would say, was the least impressive, if, if the way the world looks at it. So it said this about Bron Clifford. At the age of 25, they believed that Bron Clifford touched, touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other clergyman of his age in American history. National leaders vied for his attention. He was tall. He was handsome. He was intelligent. And eloquent, Hollywood invited him to audition for the part of Marcellus in the robe. It seemed he had everything. So that's how they all started. I think you probably know where this is going. So in 1945, all three came out of the blocks. And why is it that most of us in the room, other than a few, have never heard of Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford? especially when they came out so strong. Five years later, Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career, and this hurts because it sounds like that this is problematic, as a radio and television uh, host <laughs> and a newspaper columnist. Now that I could believe could corrupt somebody. Templeton decided he was no longer a believer in Christ in the orthodox sense of the, of the term. By 1950, the future Babe Ruth of evangelism wasn't even in the game, no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. He completely gone. So then it says, well, what what happened to Clifford? In 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, his health, and then his life. Alcohol and financial irresponsibility had done him in. He wound up leaving his wife and their two Down syndrome children at the age of 35, the once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a run-down motel on the edge of Amarillo. His last job was selling used cars in the panhandle of Texas. He died, as John Hagee put it, he put it this way, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. Some pastors in Amarillo had to take up a collection among themselves in order to purchase a casket so his body could be shipped back east for a decent burial in a cemetery designed only for the poor. Hmm. So, so here we are. We have these three men who started incredibly well, but only one finished. Only one. And as, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I, that I, I learned, and it, it kind of ties in, you'll see this analogy before we go, as we go through the whole book, but my wife was a sprinter. And, and, of course, you know I know some people, I won't mention any names, who are more distance runners. Uh, and so the difference is, and my wife talked about this, she said when you're a sprinter, the starting blocks are everything. If you mess up the starting blocks, you lose. The start is the key to the whole thing. Well, I just watched her, and, and this wasn't even a very long race, but it was a distance race and even on something as short as a 5K, but I've seen those that are half marathons or full marathons, the start is meaningless. I mean, I've literally seen people drinking coffee in a coffee shop because the race is so big, they're waiting for it to clear out. The race has started, and they're so far back, they're still drinking coffee and talking, and eventually somebody says, the race has started, and they say, well, yeah, we know. We're going to wait till we get some room, and then we'll kind of we'll, we'll join in. So the race means, I mean, on a marathon, the beginning means nothing; it's all about the end. And we live in a marathon; we don't live in a sprint. And so, the and, and the thing that we'll we'll get in some pretty tough things today, some great challenges uh, from uh, Steve Ferrar here. He said, "In the Christian life, it's not how you start that matters; it is absolutely the way you finish." So then we go on, and when we hear this story. Uh, about John, and I, I didn't know how to say his name, uh, Bassano, is that how you say it? John Bassano. and he's First Baptist Houston, been there for a number of years, He was, and he was about to finish uh, college at this point, and he was having dinner over at his fiance's house one night after supper. He was talking with his future father-in-law, and that's Dr. Paul Beck on the porch. Now, Dr. Beck had been in ministry for years, and uh, uh, eventually, no way to get around it, the subject toward, uh, you know, uh, their conversation got into ministry. And he said, John, because he was enter- entering ministry, he said, as you get ready to enter ministry, I want to give you some advice. Start true. This is this is a good write-down right out of the gate. Start true. Stay true to Jesus. Make sure that you keep your heart close to Jesus every day. And this line rocked my world. You know, when you ever get to the point where you think you've studied so many things, you think what the person's going to say ne- next you've already heard, and then all of a sudden you haven't. And I thought to myself, oh, I know where Steve is going with this. But I wasn't ready for this line. Stay true to Jesus. Make sure that you keep your heart close to Jesus every day. It's a long way from here to where you're going, and Satan's in no hurry to get you. So that's, you, don't, you don't hear that a lot. You always hear, rightfully so, that the enemy is ready to destroy you, and that's true. But what this older man was telling the young man going into ministry, but he's patient. As a matter of fact, he knows back to the start, if he rushes you too quick, you probably won't fail. But if he'll just kind of hang out and he'll just kind of be around you and just kind of watch what's going on and kind of take his time because it's a long journey to the end, that eventually, if he'll use that strategy, if he can, what we talked about in many of our studies, if he can coax us out from under the authority of Christ, those of us that have claimed to have already been justified by Jesus, over time, if he can coax us out, as he did these two evangelists who didn't finish well, he'll destroy you. So what he said is, don't think that you need to be close to Jesus some days. Be close to Jesus every day. And I will tell you this, in my own life, I've developed this visual, because as as all these things we're talking about in this book, I'm, I'm seeing them and I'm living them, because now I realize I've hit that age of life when men start falling away. You know, when I was younger, you t- if you'd give me these stats, I'd have been, nah, I don't know about that. But as I've gotten older, I realize as the as the next disappointment comes in, the next text, hey, have you heard? You know, the next, hey, you hear what happened to so-and-so? You know, and all this kind of stuff, it's starting to happen all the time now. You know why? Because we're far enough down the journey, it's time for people to start falling off. They can't finish. And what I, li- I'm so terrified. Hear me now, this is important. I'm so terrified of failing Christ and not finishing strong, that the vision in my head is this, because even though people I've had to talk to, because we need to keep the humility, even when somebody falls, and you may not have yet, what I've told them over and over again, if I step out of the authority of Christ, I can do worse than you you are doing now or you have ever done. I'm capable of horrible things. And I had a guy call the show one time and said, I'm really disappointed in hearing about that about you. You mean to tell me that if you weren't a follower of Christ, that you would be an evil person? And you know what I said? Apparently so. All I have to do is look at my life outside the authority of Christ and to look at my life as I continue to grow in Christ, how pathetic I looked last year compared to this year because of the power of Christ. Not not any kind of great self-control on my part or this code of conduct that I I, I have willpower. It's just about Jesus is so powerful. If I cling to him, he changes you. And I literally have this visual every day that I just take my hands and I wrap my arms around the waist of Jesus figuratively in my mind, and I'm afraid to even look away. I want to hang on to him and just stare at him and say, if I cling to you, then you know what? I'm not going to fail because you don't fail. The only way I can fail is to leave you. So I'm, I make a commitment. Make a commitment like this. Like we have all these men that keep falling away and being unfaithful to their wives. And you have to be careful with this, but I really did. I said, Lord, I, 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 I care about you so much that I don't embarrass you, that I don't shame you. And see, if I don't want to shame Jesus, and I won't shame Sherry. If I try to not shame Sherry and, and don't check in with Jesus, then you start justifying all kinds of things. Because human beings are so flawed, you can justify just about doing anything to any other human being. But what you can't justify is how you're going to betray Jesus after what he did for us on the cross. So if that's our focus, we're not going to betray him, then we find ourselves not betraying others that he's placed us with as well, who are trusting us. And and, and I really think that that sin is so severe, like we talked about in the last chapter of James, that many times God has killed people within the church because of the damage they do. How many of you have talked and had to minister to somebody in pretty long, it didn't take you long to get to the point that you realized that this person is betrayed the faith because of someone who claimed to represent the faith? Now, you can say, Rick, that's not fair. It may not be fair, but it's reality. We're all flawed, Rick. It, yeah, that's right. That's why we need Jesus. But Jesus does provide what we need, not just. Not to use it as an excuse that we're on this side of heaven. It's almost like I think too many men and too many people think that not finishing strong is just a given. Nobody does. No, yes, they do. I think when 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 I hear that the people went to see Billy Graham, since so he was mentioned here, went to see him in North Carolina in the final months of his life, and they look and in his house, in gigantic writing, is scripture, because he's so old he can't see very well. And, and, and the, when they asked him, so what's this scripture up everywhere? Is this how, is, was decorations for the home? And you know what Franklin said? No, he's memorizing scripture. He has it up here. Now it's big enough where he can still read it. Billy Graham, months ago, was still memorizing scripture. If anybody could have knocked it out of gear and sat on the porch in North Carolina and said, <laughs> he's still memorizing scripture in the final days of his life. And so, if Billy Graham had not arrived, does anybody here think you've arrived? If the Apostle Paul said he had not arrived and that he spent worked out his salvation with fear and trembling, that's what I'm talking about. Remember, remember what we were talking about? we got to get to the point where we fear God more than we fear the world. So we don't become world pleasers because people might not like us or somebody's going to come against us. No, what we need to realize is I don't want to shame you. And if we adapt that attitude there's where the strength is. It's like I finished the book. I'm sorry about that, about how to finish strong. Well, let's wrap it up. The book's over. Um, so, so anyway, so the, when we're doing the same story, so back to the older man. So he's telling him that you, you cling to Jesus every day because it's a long journey and Satan's in no hurry to get you, meaning he'll take time. So here's what he said. The older guy said this. This is where we get to the one out of ten. It has been my observation. This is, this is uh, Paul Beck talking to the younger man. One out of ten who start out in full-time service for the Lord at 21 uh, are still on track by the age of 65. He says one out of ten who start full-time service by the age of 21 are still on track at the age of 65. They're shot down morally. They're shot down with discouragement. They're shot down with liberal theology. Hello. They get obsessed with making money. But for one reason or another, nine out of ten fall out. Now, at this time, the young pastor is, is is 20 years old and he said i was shocked and he said i just can't believe that i think that's impossible this just can't be true he said so then this younger pastor says he he talks about how he went home he took out a blank piece of paper and on the back of his scofield reference bible he wrote down the names of 24 young men who were his peers and contemporaries man they were all young men desiring to go into full-time ministry These were young men in their 20s, all sold out for Jesus Christ by all accounts. They were trained for ministry, burning in desire to be used for the Lord. They were committed as young preachers uh, to to, to make an impact for the Lord in their generation. And he says, I then reflect with a sigh. When this book was written, I'm now 53 years old. And from time to time as the years have gone by, I've turned back to that page in my Bible and crossed out a name. I wrote down those 24 names when I was just 20 years of age. 33 years later, there are only three names remaining of the original 24. 21 of the 24 had left the faith or had some great moral failures. And so he realized that maybe the old man knew he was talking about. Then the next one is, is uh, when John MacArthur Jr., we all love John, was approached by a man after a service when he was in Ireland. He said, is your name Jack MacArthur? And the man said, Mark MacArthur said yes. He said, your father came to Ireland over 30 years ago with two other men to hold a revival in Belfast and other parts of the country. I went to hear your father speak, and at that meeting I received Jesus Christ. I dedicated my life to, to the ministry. I'm a pastor because the Lord used your father to minister to me. Would you please tell me you know, how your dad's doing when you see him, tell him you met me, And then MacArthur indicated that he would, and then the man asked another question, what's your father doing now? And MacArthur thankfully told him that his father was still preaching and pastoring. Then the man said, is he still faithful to the word? John MacArthur Jr. said, yes, he is faithful and still standing. And then he said, well, what happened to the other two men who were ministering in Ireland with your father? How are they doing? MacArthur replied, I'm sorry to report that one has denied the faith and the other died an alcoholic. There it is again. Three relatively young men, completely committed to Christ, make their way to Ireland to preach the gospel. They see God do great things, but 30 years later, when the dust had settled, only one out of three was still standing. These are staggering figures. And um, so when you think about that, I think you go back to what, was, what, what, what Paul Beck said to the young pastor who was going on to do great things. He said, Satan is in no hurry to get you. Do you think Satan had any shot at all these young guys when they first were on fire for Jesus? you think he, he just kind of laid back? Notice what he's saying 33 years later, 30 years later. It's a long journey to the end, and Satan played, and the adversary played, and their sinful desires were not completely put away, and over that long, slow fade, he wiped them out. So Ferrar goes on to, to talk about, you know, some, some other things that he, and, and I'm gonna skip some of that just for what we have today, about all these stories. But one of the things that that I don't want you to get here today, and this is one of the things that's that Ferrar made clear, and everybody in this room needs to get this. He says, please don't hear these stories and think, well, these are all vocational ministry people. This does not apply to me. Well, these are guys that that's going to be their vocation. Well, it certainly may not be that your vocation is ministry, but the Bible says that every single person listening to this Bible study and in this room who claims the name of Jesus Christ and says, you've justified me, I'm now one of yours, every single person is in ministry, and there's nothing in Scripture that says part-time. Completely, full-time, all the time. And that is the point that he's, if you look at Ephesians 4, if you have something, write this down. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, one of the scriptures that's referenced. It's, and this is um, Paul writing to Ephesus, and he said, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Well, who are the saints? He says, look, here's what I've set up in the church. I'm, I've, got, I've got apostles, I've got prophets, I've got evangelists, I've got shepherds, I've got teachers, and what are they there to do? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. At our church, we have a phrase right now called live sent. You know what that means? The guys who are in vocational, women in vocational ministry, they're certainly going to answer to God, but they've been given to the body to get them ready to go out, and what does, what does Paul say? Into ministry full time. See, see, the biggest mistake we make, and I remember having this mentality, if I don't get a check for ministry, then I'm supposed to give money to those who are in ministry. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that, and there's a call to do that. But that does not mean that's your whole role. I provide the money for the ones who go out and advance the gospel. You certainly certainly should give what God tells you to give, and to the people that are in vocational ministry, certainly. However, that does not exempt us from the ministry he's given us as well, beyond the giving. Where, wherever you are, you're, you're, you're in the marketplace. And we're there. So so don't you you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. These numbers won't apply. No, it applies to all of us. If we're serious about following Christ, we're in full-time ministry. If we're a husband, we're in full-time ministry. If you, if you are a dad, you're in full-time ministry. And, 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 he, and this is what Farrar says. He says, what the enemy wants you to think is that that's not true. The last thing Satan wants everybody in this room to realize is that we're in ministry. What he would prefer to make the army that he's fighting against smaller is for the majority of to say, well, this not us. We're not, we're not in ministry. But the Bible, completely in conflict with this, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, I use this as a coach. I use this as a coach. I try to tell people that I'm coaching, what we're doing here today is worship. And they're like, worship? And I say, yeah, I hope I can stick to that before this practice is over. But, but what? let me tell you why it's worship. You're going to do today something God's gifted you to do or, you, or you've been put here to do. To go out here and do this without excellence is sin. It's not about winning games. It's about you saying, God, I can mentally think, I can I can physically move, and these gifts you've given me and the influence of sport has been given me, I'm going to come out here and do it the best I can do it. And if I don't do it for any other reason, I'm doing it to worship you. Because listen to what, what Paul says in Colossians 3 23, and 40, uh, 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's, that's big. You know, you can sit there and say, "I don't like my boss. I don't like who's in charge." You know what the Bible says? Who cares? Let me tell you who you're working for. You're working for the Lord. Can you go to Him today and said, "I did a good job. I represented you well." Because I love this. Don't even worry. You you certainly want to be excellent. I just got through teaching this past weekend uh, Daniel in Babylon, and I love that that the people who were going against him to try to find a way to get him in trouble with King Darius and six with the lions. They said. We can't just get him on the normal stuff because he has an excellent spirit. You know what they were saying? We can't get Daniel with a woman. He won't go there. We can't get Daniel on him stealing from the king. He won't do it. We can't get him on getting behind somebody's back and running them down to get them removed as a place of authority. He won't do that. You know what somebody said? I hope they say this about me, and I hope they say this about you. If you want to get Daniel... He's so excellent and above reproach, the only way you can get him and put him in a position that if he rejects God, he'll get in trouble. Now that he'll do. He will not reject God. We'll get him on that. And what did they do? They set up a scenario where the only way Daniel could get in trouble was to be in conflict with God. And then Daniel said, well, then I'll have to be in trouble with the king here on earth, not the king of kings. I love that the minute he got the document that had sealed his fate, said he went upstairs, he opened up his windows, he faced Jerusalem like he did three times a day every day, and he prayed out loud to the one and only living God, holding the document that was going to doom him for doing it. But up to that point, there was no way to get him because he wouldn't fall for the things everybody else falls for. The people who didn't even believe what he believed said he had an excellent spirit. King Darius, when you realize he's been trapped, is telling Daniel, good luck in the lines. I hope the God that you continually serve and continually pray to, I hope he gives you a break. I hope he saves you. Darius didn't even believe at that point. You know what I love about that, talking about us in the workplace? This is good. It hit me like a ton of bricks this weekend. God called the, the children of Israel to be his priesthood to take Jesus, Messiah, to the world. And when they were rejecting that, and they were rejecting God to be his priesthood, he then took the excellent remnant out, placed them in, hear me now, Babylon, and their influence and their salt and light in Babylon caused the king of all Babylon that covered quite a big a bit of territory to be the priest that his own people wouldn't be. Darius came back and said, I got a new document. We're all going to serve the God of Daniel. He couldn't get his own people to do it, so he took the remnant who was obedient to him, put them in Babylon to force Babylon to honor him. That's, that's our call. You don't think you're in Babylon? You're absolutely in can USA, red, white, and blue, all you want to. This is Babylon. You heard on Sanctity of Life Sunday, our pastor say, we get a new Congress, and the first thing they do in the very building that was attacked on 9-11, they take that building that we rebuilt, painted it pink. You think, well, good, that's for breast cancer research. Oh, no. They put it up there because they said, hey, good news. We're now going to make access to abortion and late-term abortion more, more uh, available than ever before. That's our first move as a new Congress, and we're going to smirk and smile, and we're going to sign it in the same building on the place where we were attacked on 9-11. You talk about a stiff-necked people. We don't learn anything. So we're in Babylon. But we got a lot more freedom than Daniel had. And God's given us the opportunity to influence this country to finally, Either point to God, but you know what? Whether it does or not, we're going to. Amen? Even if it has to be one individual at a time. If we can't influence the government, we're going to influence individuals in the country. We're going to influence the world because that's what we were called to do. And I got news for you. So that means all of us also fall into the one out of ten category. And then we talk about Jesus being the light of the world. Jesus said, we're the salt of the earth. He did not say that we were part-time. And then comes the statement. Boy, Steve, I can just see him in his pants. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. And uh, I've had the opportunity to speak with Steve a few times. You know, he came to speak to us, and he's been to our church a couple times. And um, here's what he says, and this is going to rock everybody in the room. What makes you think you're the one out of ten? So you're not the nine? The odds are not against you. I mean, the odds are against you. So everybody here thinks they're the one. What makes you think you're a one out of ten? I remember reading that going, okay. Well, here's what I'd like to say about our room. I hope that we would be the one out of 10 of whatever group we're in, because I don't want to do it in here, because if we do it in here, there ain't many of us going to finish strong. <laughs> I hope we can be one out of 10 kind of men wherever we go. We'll be the one out of 10 there. So the, 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 so let's ask ourselves the question what makes us that? What is it about us that says that, that we're, yes, I'm going to finish strong? You know what Steve says? The odds are against you. He said, but you know what? There's a difference in impossible and improbable. It's improbable, but it's not impossible. It will take tough choices, and it will take the things. How many Bible studies have we done in here? I remember Calvary Roads. when it jumped out at me. It's going to take brokenness. It's going to take brokenness. I will tell you in my own life, I celebrate. I celebrated again this past weekend. I celebrate that God did whatever he knew he needed to do to finally break me. I'm thankful for that. I'm going to be reunited with my son. He's got that resolve. But I'm going to tell you, until I was broken, because I always thought it was about strength. You Guys, keep in mind, when this happened to me 11 years ago, I had been a follower of Jesus since 96, but I had still not gotten to the point where God said, you, don't, you still don't quite get it. You're still trying to do a lot of this under your own self-control, or, hey, I'll tell you what, you give me a tough challenge, and I'll take it. But I realized that this fallen creation and this sinful flesh was a bigger opponent than I could handle. But I thought I had to keep trying to, you know, be, be self-control, stronger. And what Jesus said, I got to do something here to break you down. You still haven't buried you yet. You know what I love now? I talked about a young man about this, to a young man about this yesterday, and he started doing it too. Somebody'll say something negative. I said, that's old Rick. Yeah, absolutely. That's old Rick. I said, you, you're talking about a Rick that's dead. That Rick doesn't exist anymore. I had a guy get mad at me on Twitter yesterday. said, I did something that upset him 20 years ago. I said, well, you're upset with old Rick. <laughs> I said, 20 years ago, I don't, I'd only been saved for two years. I bet I wasn't worth anything to anybody. I said, you know what I said? I said, but let me apologize to you. I wish you would have come to me sooner and not gone on social media with it. But, uh, but let me apologize to you. Whatever I did to you, if it, if it bothered you for 20 years, I apologize I said, but please, I said, but but you're dealing with old Rick. Old Rick's dead. And I, that wonderful moment when I realized that I couldn't even tie my shoes without Jesus helping me. And I understood that if I was going to try to be the one out of the ten and I was going to finish strong, it wouldn't but I didn't need to get stronger. I needed to get weaker. I needed to be broken. And now, boy, you get up and you just cling to Jesus every day to do the simplest things. It's rare, the man who finishes strong. I love this. It's exceptional, the man who finishes strong. It is the teachable man, well, that's big, who finishes strong. You ever been around people who aren't teachable? In sports we say not coachable. How so-and-so, decent player but not coachable. I love those players that if you say, here's what you're doing wrong, Here, here's the situation, do this, do that, do that, and they go back and go boop, 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 do it just like you told them. And they come back and say, you're right, that was better. You got to be coachable. You got to be exceptional. It ain't going to happen with some half approach to we'll see. One, one, of the, one of the great things, the, again, about the story of Daniel, and I, I take this word and I write it down. We talked about it even yesterday, and that is with the young guys with me. I said, I want your word to be resolved. I will tell you something about me that's good and bad. I If I get resolved about something, oh, you can count on me. But here's the bad news. I don't get resolved about many things. (laughs) I'm not a kick guy. You know, you would go into my life and say, is Burgess interested in very many things? No, not really. There's not many things I'm resolved about. I just There's not that many things I'm all that fired up about. But I will tell you this. Daniel said in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, before you ever get to chapter 6 and beyond, he was resolved that he would not do anything that compromised God. For young people, that's, um, you don't, you, or, or any of you, single guys, whatever in here. That that means say, you don't say, I I think I'd like to adhere to God's standard for sexual purity, but we'll see. I can tell you how that's going to go. The men that I see, and it's interesting because I, I have one that, 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 that I love very much, and I've realized the reason why he does not struggle with it the way I did, he's already resolved. He's been resolved about it. I'm coming up with all these things. And he finally just kind of looked at me like, you know, I don't think like that. Oh, I wish I was you at your age. I'm resolved. Now, I'm smart. I'm not going to put myself, I'm not going to go out there and test God, you know, or say, let me see if I can get in the worst situation ever and see how it goes. Resolved means what? You don't put yourself in those situations. That's part of resolution. I already know what I will and won't do before I ever get in that situation. So you got you you got to be exceptional. You got to be teachable, and you got to understand that in order to do this, you're gonna to have to take, do some things that nobody else does. You know what you to have to take? Exceptional measures. We got to take exceptional measures in our own life if we ever intend to be one out of ten. Because can I tell you this? Out of ten people, if you're the only one who survives, that is exceptional. That's exceptional. And I love the, the. Did y'all love the Charlie Grimes story? Or Graham? however you say his name? He was. Uh, he was the scout that was that was out there. Uh, he was actually the manager of the Cubs, and he gets a call from the scout who says, "I have just come across the young, the greatest young pitcher I've ever seen. He struck out every man who came to bat. Twenty-seven came up, and twenty-seven struck out. Nobody even hit a foul ball until the ninth inning. I got the kid right here. You want me to sign it?" And the manager of the Cubs says, no, sign me the kid that fouled the ball off in the ninth inning. <laughs> he said, I'm not looking for pitchers. I'm looking for hitters. And if he's that good a pitcher, that guy that fouled it, I want him. And so what we're saying to this is we have to understand what God's looking for. And he says there's a lot of guys who have started the Christian life, but God's looking for what? He's not looking for starters who start a Christian life. He's looking for finishers. You see that changes everything, doesn't it? Is it impossible to fulfill what is required of you if you never know what it is? You ever, you ever had those kind of people in leadership or I don't know if I'd call them leaders, people who have a title, but you can't ever figure out where we're going? So what do you want us to do? And if we don't if you don't get that right, and you say, "Well, God wants a lot of people that start out really good." No. No, that's really not exceptional. There's a lot of people that start out good. There's a lot of believers out there. Not everybody's against Jesus. Just very few people serve him. You know. So what he's saying is God is looking for finishers. So don't go out and say I got a bunch of great starters because God would say on the phone, "No, go get me the guy that fouled the ball in the ninth inning." I want finishers. That's what was exceptional to me. And so we have to understand what he's talking about. So, so when we when we talk about the one out of ten. You know, and, and and you know, Farrar acknowledges this, which is funny. He says a lot of you are asking me to give you scripture that gives you the one out of ten, and he says I can't do it. He said, but I can give you two out of twelve. And then and then he takes us to Numbers chapter thirteen. If you want to jot that down, he has somewhere to turn it to. Now, remember, we all remember this. It's time for God's people to be given the promised land. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Send out for yourself." men so that they can spy out on the land of Canaan, this is verse 1 and 2, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel, and don't miss this part, you shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. Right, now, first of all, God clarifies what? I'm going to give this land to the sons of Israel. I'm going to give it to you. Now, we got to get to the point that if God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? Is it, is, is it true faith for God to say something's going to happen and you don't really think it will? Or you doubt? You look at it and say, well, that looks harder than, I don't see how we're going to do that. Well, I can tell you in my life, most of the things that have happened to me that changed me were miraculous and couldn't be done other than God doing it. And so, but but God has said, and don't miss this, because I think a lot of times we think that it's only the weak or it's only the ones, well, I expected that guy to fail. Well, right here... God says, I don't want just anybody out of the 12. Go get me the leader of the 12. I want the leader from each. I want the the best 12. Send me me the exceptional 12. And, of course, we know that God already handed over the keys to the promised land. We know that. And and we know that he brought them out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery under Moses. We know they've been liberated. Two million plus people left Egypt with gold and riches of Egypt in their possession. And now they're poised to enter the rich and prosperous land that will be their new home given to by God. And they're instructed what? Moses, give me, gave me the best of the best from each tribe. I want leaders. But then what happened? Ten of them said, I'm out. We can't take it. It's too, it's too big. I've seen these people. Only Joshua and only Caleb came back and said, we're in. So here's 12 of the best of God's people, and only two of them finished. And I love, I love the point that he makes. I, I don't know that I can say all these names right, but um, um, would, would, I thought Farrar made a good point. He said, Joshua and Caleb... And then he goes on to, to name the other ten. I'd never heard their names. He said, they all look good on the surface, but only God can see a man's heart. Endurance is the key. Endurance is the fruit of, a, of godly character. Long races don't require speed. They require grit, determination, and finishing power. And only Joshua and Caleb had that. And he says, you, He said, I love what he says right now. He said, I have a kid named Joshua. Is playing in the poo with his friend down the street named Caleb. And he goes, I don't know anybody that is named uh, Shamua, Shapat, Agal, uh, Gadel, Gaddy, Emil, Sether, uh, N- Nabi, N- Nabi Gevil." He says, anybody use those names anymore? He says, You know why? Because they're shameful. Joshua and Caleb, we remember. Because they finished. They, they said, I'm in. And we know that God said what? Of these ten, I'm going to wander you all around. Out. We're going back out to the desert, and I'm going to weed out this doubt. I'm going to weed out these people. I'm not going to hold it against their children, but I'm going to weed them out, and then we're going to come back again, and we're going to start fresh. And guess who didn't get weeded out? Joshua and Caleb. And they came back and got the job done. I heard um, Danny preach on, the, on Caleb one time. When he came back. He was in his 80s. And you know what he said? Give me the hardest place, give me the hills. Let me go into the mountains and take on these Canaanites and the hardest place to remove them. He didn't come back and say, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't turn on God. And I've wandered around out here for another 40 years, and now 80-something years old. i I was true the first time, and by golly, give me the beach or something to take. At 80-something years, years old, he said, Still here, give me the hardest job you got. Because you know why? God's going to go with me into those mountains. We're going to slaughter these people. Even with an 80-something-year-old man leading them. Give me the hardest job. Because I won't fail. Not because of who I am. Because I believe God is who he says he is. You know, we've heard the David and Goliath analogy a zillion times. But the bottom line is this. David didn't think he could beat Goliath. You think a, a, a young boy thinks he can beat a nine-foot-tall giant? He knew God could beat him. He was not a giant compared to God. He was just a giant compared to David and to these men, but not to God. To God, he was quite puny. And David said, God's going to hand him over to me because he's blaspheming his people. He trash talked him and said, God's going to kill you. And I'm going to cut your head off when he does. (laughs) Which I don't know that that was necessary, but wow, uh, it really gets the point across, doesn't it? But here's the problem. What was wrong with the other 10? E. Stanley Jones said it. They were afraid. Ten guys saw all God had done and were afraid to take the land. E. Stanley Jones' fear is the sand in the machinery of life. They had sand in the machinery. I love that line. Ten leaders started but did not finish. A whole generation perished because of those ten men and their inability to finish. Hey, guys, it's going to affect more than you if you can't finish it's going to affect a lot of people. Think about that. Think of how much damage. Like I said before, we we go over and over and over again with the studies of the power, the influence of the males in the house, in society, in the church. But we cannot forget, you can take that and flip it. Negative impact by men. I, I don't have to sell you on this, do I? How many more communities you got to go to? How many more places you got to go? How many more churches you got to see turn upside down? And every single time, you know what you find? The men turned they either were apathetic, they didn't care, or they were evil and lost. And I got news for you, and this is not going to be popular, so that's why you can email speedy at rickandbubba.com. <laughs> Listen, this is, and I, look, men and women are equal. Please don't hear any other thing. I, I praise God for my great mama, and mamas have done a million great things, and women in the church do a million great things. The women in the church of Acts did great things. But I will tell you this, when you know that on death row right now, that 94% of the men on death row either hate their father, don't know their father, or, or, they, or they have rejected their father, all of them have mamas. And many of them mamas who love them dearly. But they couldn't overcome the insult of the man who abandoned them. Couldn't do it. Like Sherry said in, in chapter 4, my pastor's trying to help me. Our friends are trying to help me. Our family's trying to help me. But we all know one thing. Ain't nobody here can replace my husband. And nobody here can replace the children's father. So we'll wait on him. Nobody can replace you. Nobody. And that's what we discovered. So we must endure. If you have the book of Hebrews, let's look at it real quick. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. And We're getting close. And we'll wrap up for the day. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look at this. What's the key? Who are we looking at? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hey, it's been set before us. And what does it say we got to do? We got to finish. We got to finish what's set before us. Now, I want to take this on. I've been this guy. Some of you are saying, Rick, I'm all in. I hear this. I appreciate that. This is all nice. I know endurance is the fruit of godly character. I'm buying into all this. I got one problem. You don't know what I've already done. You don't know what I've already done. Hey, I can relate to that. Some of you know some of what I've already done, but you don't know all of it. Very few people know all of it. Let me tell you this. It's bad. It's really, really bad. But it's redeemed, and it's defeated, and it's done. But here's the thing. If you're thinking that, it's never too late as long as you're breathing. Let me tell you when it's too late, if you're already dead. Then we can't do anything about it. It's not too late to confess your sin to the Lord in genuine repentance and receive his forgiveness. You have time to make up ground. I love when he said this. Look in the Bible at some of the people who finish strong. It does not mean finishing unblemished. Does finishing strong doesn't mean to finish perfect? That would be impossible. You ever see anybody get to the end of a long race? They look really bad. I remember the first time I went to my with my wife. She was running a half marathon, and the marathon people were in there. And some of those people, I thought, just somebody help me? I mean, they're coming to the line. I mean, like. I mean, at one time I looked at him, I said, that looks like, is that what zombies look like? I mean, I said, so that guy's going to die. That guy's not going to make it. And they're bleeding and their knees are bleeding and their feet are bleeding. And he says, so we're not going to get at the end and be with no blemishes. And we're not going to have, it's not, we don't get to the end, and not have a setback that we got to overcome, or even we might drop off, and have to get back up. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, you look at the Bible. Some who finished strong were sexually immoral at one time. Some were late to surrender to the Lord. Some had midlife crises, crises that were filled with utter failures. He said, many of those who finished strong were bitter and frustrated by the issues they created in their own life. Um, you know what I say every day? You know, my biggest obstacle is me. And how many times have you gotten in a situation said ain't nobody got me in this situation but me? You know what? You're, we're not alone. There's great people in the Bible that finished strong that there were times in their life going, I've created a mess. But they were able to overcome it because of, because of Jesus, not because of anything they were able to do. And he said, here's another one. Many who finished strong, their lives had major personal failures and major setbacks. And what did they do? They, they overcame it by embracing the grace of God. Finishing strong, I, I love this, it said, finishing strong is difficult. But this is, this, is a, this is something great right here. I never thought about this. Finishing strong is difficult, but here's something that we can't forget. It is difficult. Don't you love when somebody just tells you the deal? Hey, we're about to go through, and it's going to be awful. You know what I remember one time? I'm in, I'm in a white water raft, and I always hate. I don't like to white water. People make me because it's a good time to spend with family, but I don't like it. I don't like being out there. And what do they always tell you? let's pull off to the side. I hate when they pull off to the side because you know what that means? We got to get ready for this. <laughs> and I'm like, I hate when we go off to the side. I don't like this. So I remember in the front, because the burgesses have to be up front. So we're up front and I'm on, I'm on the right of the boat and Brooks is on the left. And he says, I want to talk to the burgesses in the front of the boat. We're about to go through the, rough, the roughest rapid of the day. And none of us in this boat want y'all to put us in the water. And I thought, how did I become the guide? (laughs) Hey, I paid to get in here. You're supposed to get us through. No, we all got to work together. So you know what he said? He said, Mr. Burgess, you got to follow my instructions. Yes, sir. He said, and Brooks, you got to do exactly what your dad is doing. It was a great teaching (coughs) moment. He said, Mr. Burgess, can you go over and roll for Brooks? I said, I cannot. He said, so how is Brooks going to roll the way we need him to roll? I said, by watching me. You know, he said, well, then you better get it right. (laughs) Because all he's going to do is emulate what you're doing. So if you're wrong, he's going to be wrong. And so so we we know that the road is difficult. But you know, we always forget. And I'm about to hear some amens. Some of y'all I know personally, if you don't amen, I'm going to amen for you. You know what else is hard? Transgressions. Doing, doing the things that God said not to do. Why do we act like that? that doesn't bring bad stuff? That's awful. Some of the hardest points of my life is because of my sin. Where did we get that the only hard thing is following Jesus? It certainly is, but I got news for you. Not following Jesus can be equally, if not worse, hard and terrible. Because you follow Jesus, even if you physically have a tough time or you go through some dark days, you're not going to have the repercussions for sin because if you're with him, you're not going to be in it. Most of my problems in my life revolve around sin. They certainly don't revolve around my devotion to Christ. Now, do I have some difficulty because of being devoted to Christ? I hope so. I I remember one day my wife said to me, she goes, do you think some of these people just think we're crazy? And I said, unfortunately, probably not yet. We got work to do. But I hope to get to the point where everybody thinks we are raving lunatics when it comes to our our devotion to Jesus. I think we're still too normal. I think we're still too normal let's keep working to where we're unrecognizable and people see Jesus and think, you know what? That's crazy. But what are they doing? So peaceful and so calm in the midst of such tragedy, because we are clinging to Jesus, we're clinging to Jesus. So we'll close on this. Um, He, he, he talks about this rowboat. And if you have the book, I know some of you don't have this picture. This was the picture that, that, um, that Steve has on the front of mine. And that's one of those rowboats. Now, I've noticed it's not on all of them, but it's on the one I have. Yeah, see, yours is a little different than mine. See, this is a rowboat. And he said, I use this analogy, because how many of you have ever seen rowers before? You ever seen these people that row? You ever done it? I, I have, I've never done it. You know, like I said, I don't even like being in that raft. I ain't getting one of these. So anyway, but have you ever noticed their back is, is facing what? The finish line. They can't see it. So... The person that makes sure they know where the finish line is is the guy sitting there with that that little that little megaphone. That's right. So they're back, they don't know where the finish is, but he does. He can see it. He says, see, we're rowing, and Jesus has got the megaphone. And we just row. And we just row. And he says, so so Jesus sees the finish line. He sees it. And he says, so when you're in the boat and you're rowing through life. Don't fix your eyes on where we're going. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he has the megaphone, and he says, go left, go right, row harder, don't row so hard, slow down. They're gaining on us. Push to the finish. Watch out. There's an obstruction. Move the boat this way. See, Jesus, we we just got to look. We got to fix our eyes on Jesus, not the finish line. And I think sometimes, you know, one of the worst things, when you see the finish line too quick, you start what? You know, some people push on to the end, but if I see the finish line, I think, thank the Lord, this is almost over. You know? And so we're going to be rowing as hard as we can row, totally committed to the voice of Jesus and our eyes fixed, fixed on him. And as long as our eyes are fixed on him, we will finish strong. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for all that you've taught us and will continue to teach us as this study goes forward. I just thank you for Steve Ferrar and his obedience to you, Lord. I really do. And and Lord, I I thank you for him reminding us that, you know, this one out of ten thing is not some, you know, toxic, masculine, or if you're a woman, listen to this, that somehow there's something so wonderful about me that I can be one out of ten. No. The only hope for any man or any woman to be one of the one out of 10 totally lies in our devotion to Jesus. Only he makes anybody exceptional because of who he is. And I pray, Lord, that our devotion to you, if if it has anything that needs to be corrected, that we'll correct that and we'll be committed that with you guiding us to the finish line, we'll blow through the tape. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week.